This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It is election day. You may know that. If you don't, it is. Make sure you exercise your right. Make sure you get out there and vote. We have coverage starting at 7 o'clock with a special edition of the Alex Pearson Show. That will be continued until 1 a.m. We have this blanketed. We'll let you know exactly how Canada votes in 2019 and what that means. Now, we will be looking at a few things to watch. Right now, we get an opportunity to talk with Ipsos Vice President Sean Simpson. Sean, how are things with you on this election day? Oh, it's a busy day and I'm happy it's here. (laughs) So we could could get it over with. (laughs) That's just it. We haven't had a 78-day campaign this time around, but 40 is still 40. It feels like 80. Regardless. <laughs> <laughs> when do you kind of get yourself up and going? Is it well before the writ is dropped when you know, obviously, that an election is coming, that Ipsos begins to organize and figure out the directions you're going? Yeah, absolutely. You know, in, in, in the coming year, even, we're in field almost on a monthly basis because elections don't happen in a, in a vacuum. You need to understand where you've come from. Uh, in order to understand the dynamics of the campaign. And so particularly back in, in the, the winter, when all of the SNC-Lavalin affair was, was in the news, we were polling constantly to be able to understand that dynamic. And you know what? Since then, we've essentially been you know, pretty close to a tie, and the campaign hasn't solved anything. Yeah, pretty wild. Well, we'll see what does unfold tonight. When things do start to unfold, when we get the polls closing in Newfoundland and we get that big sweep starting across the country, what is it that you're going to be looking for that will begin in your mind to start to tell the story of what this election produces? Well, uh, Atlanta, Canada, obviously uh, closes earlier than everybody else, given the time zones. And what we're looking for is is how many seats do the Liberals lose there? Um, if it's only a handful of seats, because remember, they won all of them last time. Uh, if, they, if they only lose a handful, then it's not a bad night for them. They're, they can expect to lose a couple. Um, if they lose 15 seats, for example, then it could be an absolutely disastrous showing for them. It sort of portends what's to come throughout the night. Now, when things hit the province of Quebec, there's always a lot of attention paid to the province of Quebec. What is it that makes Quebec such an interesting story time after time in federal Mm -hmm. elections? Well, two things. Uh, Well, actually, I'll say three. Uh, One is that it's a populous province. 25% of Canadians live uh, in in Quebec. Uh, The second is that uh, Quebecers are actually fairly volatile in their voting preferences. You know, uh, uh, eight years ago, Jack Layton all of a sudden impressed Quebecers and they voted him and the bloc, you know, almost lost all of their seats. Now in this election, uh, the, the block is, is up again. And the, the third thing is that, um, it, you know, every party is competitive, essentially, in certain areas. Not so much the NDP this time, but the Liberals have their core in Montreal. The, the uh, Tories have their core in Quebec City. And the block will win, you know, a lot of seats in rural Quebec. When you look at the block, is that something that you're going to be paying very close attention to in terms of how many seats a party like that wins? Yeah, and because uh, they're playing spoiler to the Liberal Party. So if the bloc is up near 30% of the popular vote, there's 
essentially no path to a majority for the Liberal Party. Um, if they're down closer to 20, for example, then you know what? The, the, the Liberals have a shot at performing um, really well there. So it's, it's really up to the bloc to play spoiler, not just during the election, but then perhaps after the election when we're talking about what to do with this minority situation. <laughs> and we may very well hit that. We're talking with Sean Simpson, vice president of Ipsos, and we're looking at things to monitor. Now, that certainly has been a major storyline. Do we know enough to at least be able to spell out options? Should we get a minority one way or another? Well, you know, Andrew Shear and Justin Trudeau do not agree on what the process is uh, after a minority government. You know, Andrew Shear has been saying the party that wins the most seats gets the first crack at forming government. But that's not really the way it works in Canada. The prime minister is the prime minister until they resign uh, or, you know, die, essentially. Um, so Justin Trudeau, even if he doesn't win as many seats as the Conservatives, um, has the first opportunity to pair up with other parties and try to get, you know, a, a speech from the throne pass. Uh, the trouble is, there may be a situation tonight where the Liberals plus the NDP, for example, do not equal 170. And 170 is what you need in order to secure passage of legislation in Parliament. Gotcha. So whatever number you're able to come up with has to be at least that. Yeah, exactly. However you're going to do that, you know, are, are the Bloc and the, and the NDP and the Liberals all going to get together? Can the Conservatives in the Bloc get together? I mean, how much is that going to anger Albertans, for example? Um, so I'm expecting that we should all clear our schedules for uh, the fall of 2020 or the spring of 2021. <laughs> okay, interesting. So a placeholder there. Yeah, okay. All right, I like that. And and you've got kind of your finger on the pulse. We're talking with Sean Simpson. He is a vice president with Ipsos, and we're looking at what to expect tonight. Two other things, Sean. The first is Ontario, and and then are there any ridings or any areas that are of particular interest to you in our province? Oh, yeah. Well, the 905 is uh, is key to uh, determining the fate of the Liberals and the, and the Conservatives. Uh, the Liberals actually have a, a lead in Ontario and even in the 905. And so if the Tories are able to pick up seats like Oshawa, um, like uh, Mississauga, uh, down towards Burlington and Oakville and, and maybe some some others through Mississauga and, and, and Markham, York Region, then it, it could be a good night for the Conservatives. But if the Liberals hold them off there... The Tories are going to have a really, really hard time winning a, uh, a plurality of seats. I keep saying a plurality of seats because even if the Conservatives win the most seats, the Liberals could still try to govern. And then, of course, we get down to the question of what time do the fireworks start that we get all summer long? People want to know, well, what time are we going to know? What, what time do we get the answer? Sometimes yeah. we're even moving through polling stations, closing through, you know, the prairies and out yeah. into B.C., and we already have a declaration of this is what it is. Mm -hmm. What do you think? What are the chances of that tonight? Well, I think that a minority is going to be declared, uh, you know, pretty quickly. The, the, the polls from uh, Quebec to Alberta uh, are, are uh, closed, I think, at 9.30. And so the results will come in like a tsunami there. We'll know whether there's a consensus emerged or, 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 or not. And, and so, you know, we're looking at minority, but 
we may be waiting to see how Vancouver Island falls out before we know who's got the best shot of leading that minority. Wow. And look at the map. That's uh, kind of the last stations to close. And so we could be waiting well into tomorrow. Sean, I know you'll be waiting through it. Thank you for all your hard work through this. And we'll talk again soon. It's been my pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. That is Sean Simpson, vice president with Ipsos. So, yeah, the word minority does pop up pretty easily. We hear that, and we've been hearing it, and we may hear a lot about it tonight. The question is, what happens after that? Do we get a coalition government? How successful can a coalition government be? Well, when you look historically, not very. And that's why Sean Simpson points out you may want to clear your schedule for late 2020 or early 2021. He means because we could be headed back to the polls. We have an opportunity to talk about the psychology of voting. Dr. Marcia Sirota joins us on the phone. Dr. Sirota, how are things? Things are very exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, this evening and uh, the election returns. It is a fantastic day, and we kind of take it for granted sometimes. We've talked about this on London Live already. There are countries that don't get an opportunity to have a day like today. We get to have a day like today, so we better appreciate it. And at the same time, hopefully get swept up in it. And one of the things that will be very interesting is to see the tally, not just of the votes later on tonight, and we have lots of coverage coming up on 980 CFPL this evening, but to see how many people turn out and vote. And you've kind of done a lot of thinking about what it is that maybe gets people swept up in election coverage and in making sure that they're an informed voter. When you look at what it is that maybe people need to see or need to feel, Dr. Sirota, what do you point to? I think there's a couple of things that that drive us to vote. One of them is that we want to be part of a community. We want to feel like we belong. And so if we're part of a group that all aligns in one particular direction, if we vote, then we feel more connected to that community. So whether it's liberal, conservative, green, NDP, whatever, we feel that sense of a stronger connection when we vote. But then there are also other things. Obviously, there's the values, there's the issues that are really important to us. And if the candidates are talking about things that really matter and are aligned with our future goals, then we're going to get out and vote because we have an investment in our future and in our family's future. And what have you been feeling, seeing, reading throughout this campaign? Oh, a whole lot of stuff. But I think it's very interesting how... how, um, it's very hard for people to tell right now where the vote is going to eventually land. People are talking about minority governments. They're talking about, um, you know, not knowing who's going to come up on top. And I think, you know, it's, it really speaks to the way that we vote. For example, if, if a leader, if we voted for a leader and then the leader does something that we feel maybe, you know, we don't agree with, it becomes very confusing to us because we want to believe that we have made good decisions. There's something called cognitive dissonance where a human being feels like if, if they have made a bad choice, they feel foolish. So they need to sometimes rationalize that choice so that they don't feel foolish. And so they'll keep voting for the same leader, you know, and it doesn't just happen in Canada. You can look just nearby for people who keep supporting leaders who do things that they disagree with because they, they don't want to feel like they're mis- they, uh, that they made a mistake. 
And then another thing is that we can vote for a leader or vote for a different leader in a reaction, kind of reactive, right? So a lot of times votes swing very broadly because we feel very angry because we feel betrayed by a leader or we feel that we're let down by a leader, so then we swing all the way to the other side. So that's why sometimes you can have one party with a majority and then the other party with a majority. So there's a whole lot more psychology to voting than we would imagine. Yeah, and we don't necessarily take the time to truly appreciate that, but it makes sense. You look back provincially in Ontario and you look at the swing and what happened to the Liberals after what it seemed the majority perceived as uh, maybe maybe not the best finish to their latest run in Ontario. And wow, that, that was a big changeover. But it's interesting to hear you mention that we want to be right. You You want your horse to win in the race. And we want to believe that our horse is a good horse, even if the horse turns out to be lame. You know, we don't want to think of ourselves as having made a bad mistake. And so sometimes we just hold on and we keep voting and voting. Like I was reading a really interesting article from uh, one of our Canadian um, blogs, and uh, they were saying, why do some people keep voting for the same parties or candidates even after they repeatedly lie to them or waste their tax dollars? And it's because, you know, a lot of the times it's because we have a really hard time acknowledging our own mistakes, but if we can, so that the person who wrote it was summing up, that if we can accept our own fallibility, then we have more flexibility to change the way we vote based on not just, you know, needing to feel like we're right, but but the issues and the values. And another thing that happens in elections is that we we have different ways of being persuaded. So sometimes we're persuaded by by um, emotional appeals, by by leaders who are attractive and charismatic, and sometimes we are persuaded by actually the facts, the arguments, logic, um, consistency. And so different people are persuaded by different things, and, the, and then the poor politicians have to figure out who are they going to appeal to. Are they going to appeal to the people who are looking for the charismatic leader, or are they going to appeal to the people who are looking for them to make sense? So it's, it's tough. I wouldn't want to be a politician in these days. Yeah, really. We're talking with Dr. Marcia Sirota, psychiatrist and author. You can go to marciasirotamd.com, and there's all kinds of online courses. Dr. Sirota has authored several books. There's a podcast. Now, you mentioned the, the charismatic versus what someone stands for, and in terms of how people kind of get hooked into each of those things is is there anything that you can point to that says yeah this is this is what makes people rush to this individual or these are the policies that that make them rush to this individual yes as i was saying before you know people who are very strongly affiliated with a, a belief system you know a little bit more rigid in their in their beliefs or in their affiliation they're going to tend to stay with the same party, no matter what that party does, because they are very invested in belonging to that group. Whereas people who are more kind of internally regulated, they sort of have a, a more of an individual identity, they are willing to change their mind depending on what the candidates are talking about. And another thing that is very important when we're thinking about the psychology of voting is that, you know, We've all behaved like a three-year-old in our lives, right? You know what I'm talking oh, about. Yeah. Sometimes that inner child takes over. And when things are very, very you know, intense, when things are very important, sometimes that child comes to the forefront. And so things like you know, um, being afraid, fear, or things like um, needing somebody to take care of us become more important than whether the candidate's vision aligns with our future goals. And so... 
we really need to put that three-year-old, you know, leave them home when we're going voting and have that adult self in charge who is much more rational and who's really thinking about what we want and what we need because, you know, when the child is in charge, they go for the chocolate cake over the good dinner, right? (laughs) And so we need to have that adult self be the person who's, you know, marking the ballot, not that, that child who's, who's much more motivated by fear or by, you know, superficial traits like a, a bright smile as opposed to, you know, the important values and issues that are going to get us where we want to go in life. Would we be surprised at how often the old inner child makes the real decisions in our lives? It's unfortunate, but it's very common. However, once we know about that part of our psyche, we don't have to let it be in charge. You know, the most important thing is insight. When we have the insight, then we can kind of go, oh, yeah, my three-year-old wants to make this choice, and I need my adult self to make this choice. And we can do the same when we go to the polls, you know, later on today if we haven't already voted, right? Right. Dr. Marcia Sirota joining us, psychiatrist and author. You can visit com. Dr. Sirota, what about people who do not vote? How do we kind of look at that section of the population? You know, there's something called learned helplessness, where people have had... Um, you know, a lot of difficulties in their lives where they feel that they don't have a voice, they don't have a choice, they don't have power. And that's a difficult thing to overcome. And the best way to overcome learned helplessness is to take action and to see that your actions actually do count. You know, a lot of people have had difficult backgrounds where they felt that they weren't heard, they weren't listened to, or their voice didn't matter. But, you know, voting really does matter. Every single vote does count. And so we have to help these people who feel like their voice doesn't count. We have to help them see that actually, you know, it really does matter. Some, some elections are, are won by a couple of hundred votes, right? It's, it can be really, really important, those few people who are thinking, ugh, I won't bother. So we really do need to encourage people to, to believe, to recognize that their votes matter. And the other thing is we need to see that people in so many countries, as you were saying, don't have the opportunity to vote. And we live in a free society where we have options. It's not a one-party system. It's not a dictatorship. We, our votes really do matter. We can sway the course of history, and we can get the things that are important to us by electing the candidates whose values align with our own. So it's so important that we do cast our vote because so so few people in the world actually get that choice and we are so lucky we are so privileged to have that and it's, it's such a waste not to not, not to vote i, I really it, it breaks my heart when i think about it yeah and when you when you talk to new voters sometimes young people sometimes they'll say well you know it's one vote like how many votes are there going to be millions well what does my vote count in, in the big mix of millions and that's an attitude sometimes you do have to overcome But every little drop of water makes the ocean, right? If you take out all the drops, all the individual drops, the ocean dries up. So we need to recognize that collectively we really do matter and that our votes, every single vote does count. Because if you think of all the people in Canada, you know, if if 10,000 or 20,000 or 30,000 or 100,000 people don't vote, it really makes a difference. So we really do have an impact and people need to recognize how important their vote is. And it's such a shame that, that people don't, you know, take it seriously, and, and they take that, that right, that liberty, that freedom for granted. It's such a privilege to vote, and, and, and we do have power. You know, in so many countries, people are silenced and have no power, and, you know, it's, it's a shame where we, where we would waste that incredible privilege of being able to, you know, speak our mind and, and say, this is what I believe, and this is what's important to me. So I think that we all have to get out and vote, and we have to 
see that it really does make a difference. Dr. Sirota, thank you so much for the conversation today. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Marcia Sirota, psychiatrist and author on the psychology of voting. And you have to remember that it does matter, and especially in a case of the 2019 federal election. How many of the supporters of whoever they are supporting today are saying, you know what, this thing's up for grabs. All we need to do is get the people who like what we do out there to actually vote, and we've got a chance to win. It does matter. Just got a great text from a candidate, and I won't name them, in a past election saying, votes matter. I once lost an election by 23 votes. They do matter, every single one. And it is absolutely the truth. Exercise your right. We had a chance to talk with Scott Howard, who was in town. He follows the London Knights online as far back as I can remember, to tell you the truth. And he does so because he lives in the Philippines and has lived in China. So I want to take you back so that you can meet Scott as well. Let's go back to the broadcast booth on Saturday at Budweiser Gardens. We're joined by Scott Howard, who normally is listening to tonight's games Quite a ways away from Budweiser Gardens. Right now, he's right here in the broadcast booth at Center Ice. Normally, it's China, or it's Singapore, or it's the Philippines, or it's North Korea. Well, I shouldn't say North Korea. Scott Howard joins us. Scott, you've been to North Korea. I don't. Were you allowed to have Wi-Fi in North Korea? No mobile phones allowed, unfortunately. So how did how does that happen? You get into the country and you have to turn yours over. Basically, leave it at home. Yep. Leave it at home. Yep. Don't even. What can you bring to North Korea? Uh, your clothes. That's about it. That's about it. Yeah. So, how did you get to North Korea? I actually took a bus across from China. This was a tour. Yeah, it was a tour, part of a tour group, and uh, we stayed there for a couple of days, and um, you know, checked out the country. Not too much to see, to be honest, but it's quite interesting in its own way. So. Uh, no way. Well, Scott does listen. Where are you based? I'm based in Singapore now. In Singapore. Yep. Okay, so you live in Singapore. Yes. You are originally from where? London. From London. Yep. So how does one go from London to Singapore? It's uh, kind of a long story. I started out uh, uh, just going abroad for one year um, and ended up staying for almost 19 years now. So lived in China, lived in Singapore, and uh, uh, yeah, it's been great. What is the adjustment like to do that? Because the cultures seem different. How different are they? Very different. Uh, I mean, I had an advantage when I was still quite young and had a open mind and adventurous. So, you know, in that sense, it made it a lot easier. And, and learning the language also helped. And then, uh, you know, now that I've been in Singapore, Singapore is, is a more westernized country. So a little bit easier in that sense. But, uh, you know, I still travel all over for work. Um, different countries, different cultures, and you know, still learning a lot, and uh, it's a great experience. How many languages do you speak? Uh, two. Two. Mandarin and, and English. All of my English is getting a little bit rusty. <laughs> and that's just it. Would you speak Mandarin most of the time? Yeah, yeah. In uh, in China, definitely. Uh, Singapore is bilingual, um, or perhaps even more languages in Singapore, but yeah, mainly in English in Singapore. How tough is it to learn Mandarin? Very tough. Yeah? Yeah. How long would you say it took you? I would say the first four years were, uh, you know, just very basic. Uh, and then I got a, uh, a private tutor that was teaching me a couple times a week. And then it kind of 
and improved quite quickly. But uh, yeah, I'm still learning. To be honest, it's it's been a long process. Is it difficult to get people who speak Mandarin to accept your Mandarin? It, it, you know what I mean? It, uh, they look at you and know. Okay, it's kind of like when you you go to Quebec and and you try and order something in French off the menu, and it's kind of like, well, thank you for trying, and they're happy about that. But it's always kind of yeah, thank you for trying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because China is uh, you know such a vast country, different dialects and accents. So um, you know, where I learned my Chinese, if I go to a different city, they actually could probably tell where I where, what city I learned my Chinese in. So in that sense, but uh, you know. Um, I've been told my accent is is quite uh, quite good, but good? you never know. Maybe they're just trying to, uh, you know, uh, make me. Happy. <laughs> I don't know. If you've been told it more than once, it's probably really good. Yeah. Now you've been able to come back to London. By the way, thank you for listening to night's broadcast and providing us with some of the most gorgeous pictures. The places you get to go are phenomenal. What has brought you back to London now? Um, it's been a while since I've been here, and. Um just thought I'd come back for for a couple weeks and uh, on my way to Houston for work tomorrow. So uh, it's a good time to come back, catch a game. And you get to see Luke Evangelista's first two goals. Yep, amazing. See everything in person. Well, safe flight to Houston, safe thank flight you. back home to Singapore. Scott, thank you for, for everything. And, yeah, uh, thank you, guys. And thank you for bringing the London Knights appreciate this, too. Because when Scott was in North Korea, you were wearing a London Knights hat. So thank you for bringing the London Knights to North Korea. Scott Howard, who was in town from the Philippines, he gets up in the morning and listens to games. It will be Saturday morning when the game begins in the Philippines, 7.30 a.m. That's when he catches it. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.